Hello and welcome to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. Today's episode sees us return to the former Yugoslavia in the Western Balkans. There is little about this triangle of southeastern Europe that its inhabitants can agree on. Land, language, religion and belonging are all contested between Serbs, Bosnians, Croatians and Albanians who live beside one another alongside borders they don't always recognise. One such group is the Kosovo Serbs, a largely orthodox Christian group who live in Kosovo but identify with and are loyal to Serbia, often putting them at odds with the Albanian Muslim majority. For centuries, the Serbs have seen Kosovo, which lies to the south of Serbia and was until 2008 a Serb region, as their homeland and see the replacement their word, not mine, of Serbs in the region by Albanian Muslims as an example of a regional and, since the wars of the 90s, international conspiracy against Serbia. It is the Kosovo Serbs, their beliefs and their grievances that are the subject of today's conversation. Why is Kosovo important? Well, to a great degree, Serbia's victim status born out of lost territory in Kosovo provides it the tools it needs to question the sovereignty of not just Kosovo, but Bosnia-Herzegovina and Montenegro as well. The Belgrade government heavily influences Serbs in all these countries, to the considerable detriment of those countries too. For us in the West, this means the entire Western Balkans remains a grey zone, dysfunctional, fractious and vulnerable to the influence of Russia and China. 2022 shows us how dangerous Russian influence could be in the region, and so there is a link between the war in Ukraine and what's happening in Kosovo. Five EU countries, mostly Orthodox Christian countries loyal to Serbia, still do not recognise Kosovo as an independent country. The significance of this? Well, if they aren't willing to recognise Kosovo, how powerful can their assertions really be that Ukraine is a sovereign country that can decide its own future? So what happens to the Kosovo Serbs matters to the Balkans and to Europe. My guest for this conversation is Boyan Elek, a researcher at the Belgrade Centre for Security Policy, a Serbian think tank dedicated to covering goings-on in the Western Balkans. Boyan himself is Serb but was born in Kosovo, so his insights on this minority group, not always well treated by their Albanian neighbours, were fascinating to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce the Kosovo Serbs. Hi, Boyan. How are you? Hi, I'm doing uh, great. How have you been? I'm very well. Boyan, we're talking about the Kosovo Serbs today. That is to say, the people who at census time and perhaps at other times when they're asked, identify as Serbian or loyal to Serbia or ethnically Serb, but live in the place we now call Kosovo, this partially recognised country in the Western Balkans. To start the conversation, I think we have to go back quite a lot further in history than I usually do on this podcast, more than six centuries, in fact, to 1389. This is probably the most important year in Serbian cultural memory. It's almost like 1066 in English history. Can you explain why 1389 is so important and why it's particularly important 
in relation to the group we're discussing today? Uh, yeah, uh, you are uh, absolutely right. Uh, 1389 is one of the most important and well-remembered uh, years in the collective Serbian uh, history. This is the year that saw, or there was a turning point of the decline of the Serbian medieval empire. At the time, Serbia uh, had a Tsar, and in, on this in, this year, there was a seminal battle that took place between the Serbian uh, uh, coalition forces. Let's call it that, because I don't think the term Serb can even apply uh, uh, so 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 far back in history against the Ottoman Empire, and. It's depending on the sources that you that you consult. Uh, the outcome of this battle is unclear, but uh, it, it it has been a defeat of the Serbian Christian uh, Christian forces, uh, and after that, the Serbian uh, Empire fell into decline and eventually was consumed by the Ottoman Empire. So this was a uh, battle that took place in uh, Kosovo Polje, so in the current territory of Kosovo, just outside of uh, Pristina, uh, its capital. Uh, and it saw uh, both the Serbian uh, leader, Tsar Lazar, and the Ottoman uh, ruler uh, killed in this battle. So both of them died. Uh, and after that, for some almost five centuries, Serbs have been living as a part of Ottoman Empire without, uh, without our statehood, to say so. And uh, for this reason, uh, but I would say also for this maybe more modern use by various political actors of this battle and of this history. Kosovo has been uh, a very prominent figure in Serbian mythology, but also history, nation building and such. Uh, and Kosovo, just for the sake of facts, had uh, re rejoined Serbia uh, after the uh, First World War, when, uh, when the Ottoman Empire was finally, you know, has left the Balkans and uh, Ser Serbia... Uh, Serbia reclaimed the territory of Kosovo. So it played a central figure. It is called the Cradle of Serbia. There's a lot of Serbian monasteries there. There was a capital of the Serbian Empire as well during the medieval times. So it played a lot of, uh, a, lot of uh, a big role in the, in the history. There's quite a lot there that I want to ask you about. Kosovo is a Serbian word. Uh, it comes, as you said, from the place where the 1389 battle took place, Kosovo Polja, which means something like Field of the Blackbirds in Serbian. At the time of 1389, people, I suppose, didn't really recognize Kosovo as being separate from Serbia. It was considered Serbian for all intents and purposes. But over the next few centuries, and you've alluded to this, the entire region really was a kind of zone of contestation between major powers, the Habsburgs and the Ottoman Empire. What happened that resulted in this stretch of land, Kosovo Polje, becoming a place in its own right? Because clearly at a certain point, it stopped being just a part of Serbia and it became Kosovo. Why did that happen? It's obviously a very big question, but as briefly as you can. Uh, well, yes, after, let's maybe go back a century ago. So uh, the, the one key ingredient, I would say, is the ethnic opposition of the people who live in Kosovo. And just maybe also for the sake of accuracy, the full name in Serbia is Kosovo and Metohia, which is a term contested by Kosovo, uh, Kosovo Albanians, uh, Albanians uh, who live there. But um, ever since uh, Kosovo has once, be had once again become part of uh, Serbia or Yugoslavia at the time, 
it had always been predominantly populated by uh, Kosovo Albanians, which are Muslims, and they are considered autochthonous uh, population in, in these lands. Uh, whereas Serbs, the Slavic people, they are considered uh, colonizers because they came from the Carpathian Mountains. So this also this is also a trope that you can occasionally hear when there are uh, you know conflicts between Serbs uh, and, and and Albanians that Albanians are have there been since the beginning and Serbs came there and conquered uh, conquered the lands. But to go back to a more recent history, they were had uh, during Yugoslavia times, so Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, uh, but also under Milosevic. Uh, Kosovo Albanians have been systematically excluded from the polity of other Slavs because, it, uh, for example, if you take uh, Yugoslavia, it's a country that gathers together southern Slavs, which is what Yugoslavia means. And by definition, Kosovo Albanians, who are not Slavic people, were excluded from this uh, polity. I would say uh, there have, had always been this um, potential for, for conflict because even under Yugoslav times, there has never been a, an inter-ethnic peace uh, achieved. But the, the uh, situation became uh, pretty much uh, unbearable under Milosevic. Uh, and it started with... Um, because at the time, Kosovo and Metohija were an autonomous province within uh, Serbia, which was within Yugoslavia. And under Milosevic rule, who is an extreme Serbian nationalist, he sought to take away the, the, uh, the rights that Kosovo had and also to strip away Albanians from the rights to education. They were expelled from schools. Uh, they were expelled from, uh, uh, from you know, state-owned enterprises. They lost their jobs. Uh, and eventually... It culminated in a armed conflict. Uh, Kosovo Albanians formed the Kosovo Liberation, Liberation Army (KLA), and Serbian uh, forces, police, military, but also paramilitaries engaged in a protracted conflict against against them. It all cu- culminated in 1999, which is another year that is very traumatic for Serbs in our in a collective uh, 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 history, when uh, because of the atrocities committed by the Serbian forces. NATO started a campaign uh, that that eventually resulted after 70 plus days of bombing uh, with a peace agreement where Kosovo was effectively placed under UN administration and all Serbian forces withdrew from Kosovo. I I want to come to the events of 1999 in more detail later on. I I just want to sort of think about the relationship between Serbia Serbia and Kosovo a bit more. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that Kosovo is seen as the sort of cradle of Serb civilization. When people use that term, Serb civilization, what do you think they mean? Serb civilization? Well, I think they uh, go back into these uh, medieval times in the presence of Slavic people, Serbs, uh, in this uh, region. And I think uh, it is essentially a some kind of resentment that the Serbian uh, empire, which was one of the even maybe largest empire at the time, uh, ceased to exist. And then Serbs were effectively erased from the, from the history of Europe for 500 years uh, while we were under the Ottoman, Ottoman rule. So I think it's some kind of a grievance, national grievance for this greatness uh, that existed uh, back in the day. And obviously in early 19th century, when there was there were first uprisings of Serbian people against the Ottoman empires, uh, against the Ottoman empire, and later on throughout the, throughout the wars, it, 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 I think it was this uh, need or desire to return, return to this 
former glory that Serbia had access to three seas, whereas now it has access to zero, that Serbia extended to Peloponnesus and it, it included many different people and, and lands that are now not, uh, uh, not Serbia. So I think this would be the uh, one thing, but also... In Kosovo, there is a lot of Serbian um, heritage, cultural heritage. There are monasteries that were built six, seven hundred years ago by Serbian rulers. Four of them are currently under UNESCO protection. One of them burned to the ground, unfortunately, but three of them still standing, including the Patriarchy of Peć, which used to be the seat of the Serbian Patriarchate. So there is a lot of this cultural, religious, uh, but also, I would say, uh, nationalist uh, reading into this, uh, this history, because during the uprising of the Serbs in early 19th century, Kosovo actually did not figure that much in as a cradle of Serbian civilization. I would say that was a more modern uh, take on the situation uh, because if you read, and there have been some uh, excellent books written about it, that Serbs essentially had more um, desire to go back to other lands that they considered Serbian, which is Montenegro and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And Kosovo started figuring later as a place where Serbs could expand because Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, uh, took over, that was their, their place of influence. And with the decline of Ottoman Empire, it was considered easier to, to um, expand into the formerly Turkish, Turkish land. So I think this was also uh, a political device, I would say, used by nationalist Serbian politicians at the time to, to let's say, revive the Serbian imperialism uh, in, the, in, in the wake of the Ottoman decline. You mentioned that the Kosovar Albanians are Muslim. Serbs are Orthodox Christian, by and large. As we've said, kind of Kosovo is, is important to the Serbs because of this battle in 1389. And clearly... Kosovo has become something that the Serbs don't really recognize, particularly on the grounds of religion and in terms of ethnicity. It has become somewhere different. Do you think possibly with the focus that a lot of Serb politicians over the last 100, 150 years or so have placed on Kosovo, there's an element, the reason that they assign a great deal of importance to Kosovo is because it's sort of slipped away. There's an almost an element of you want what you haven't got to all this. Uh, well, yes, I guess that, that could be uh, one part of the explanation. And I think this is also a very prominent um, issue nowadays, ever since Kosovo was placed under the UNMIC administration. So it is considered, again, by most of the Serbs, you, you can never... You know, claim that this is a universal opinion uh, amongst among Serbia. There is a significant portion of the population that really thinks that Kosovo had been lost, and there is no point of Serbia actually claiming uh, claiming it back. But yes, for a large uh, part of the population, it is seen as uh, something that slipped away that Serbia should get back to. And if we at Belgrade Center for Security Policy, we do annual public opinion polls, and still most of the Serbs think that the ideal solution for Kosovo-Serbia dispute is to have Kosovo reintegrated into Serbia. Funnily enough, they never mentioned what would happen with Kosovo Albanians uh, uh, in this process. But I guess if you if you dig deeper into the answers, most of them would consider that Albanians do not deserve to be there, which is something uh, simply impossible to to implement. Of course, it's a wet dream of the of the Serbian nationalist nationalist thought. But there is also this again, if you. Uh, 
uh, if you implement this approach of ontological security, where Serbs have considered Kosovo as an integral part of our national identity, culture, history, there is this almost anxiety over the loss of Kosovo because you, from this ontological perspective, we wouldn't be Serbs without having Kosovo. And this has, again, place uh, or it has its roots in the history, but also I would say uh, the more important reasons are the ones from more recent past. The Kosovo has has is being abused by the uh, political elites to, you know, ramp up nationalism, uh, to, you know, uh, obtain votes uh, on this issue. And Kosovo figures prominently in Serbian daily political life, and it has been uh, make it or break it when it comes to winning elections on so many occasions. How different are the Kosovar Albanians and the Serbs culturally? Obviously, as I said, Serbs are Orthodox Christian and Kosovar Albanians are Muslim. You grew up in Kosovo. You are you are Serb, Boyan, but you but you grew up in Kosovo and you were born there. Um, what about the more abstract differences? Things like sense of humour, uh, pride, warmth. You know the the sort of cultural markers that you can pick up on only by spending time with quite a lot of time with with people. Well, uh, I guess there are things that we have in common and then things that separate us. So apart from these very obvious things like the religion, there is a, a, a linguistic uh, difference because because Albanian language is a completely different subfamily within the uh, um, European languages. And there is almost no overlap with the Serbian language, which is a Slavic language, except for the few words. So I guess there is a some vocabulary that is uh, similar because uh, Kosovo Albanians have been uh, adopting Serbian uh, Serbian words maybe in their expression and there are several of those that are uh, in in daily use. I would say there is also a more um, broad shared uh, uh, cultural heritage that comes down from the Ottoman Empire. So food would be fairly similar. For example, pitas, uh, aivar, if you heard these expressions, I would say these would be Similar things, but also I think it is the, uh, speaking in more abstract terms, would be some something like, um, and this is uh, this goes for most of the Balkans, is this uh, hospitality of the people. So if you welcome people in your home, uh, nothing bad should happen to them. You should feed them. You should you know uh, welcome them with open arms and with, with everything that you've got in your house. So I think this is very... Uh, this is very similar between uh, Kosovo Albanians and Kosovo Serbs, or Serbs in general, all the people, all the people in the Balkans. You you mentioned the state of Yugoslavia that were that had two sort of formations in the twentieth century. The first was a kingdom, and the second was a socialist state led by Tito that sort of dominated the second half of the twentieth century of the region. Kosovo was a province within the Serbian part of Yugoslavia. It had a degree of um, technical autonomy in that case, and it was a multi ethnic province with Serbs and with Kosovars. Do you think that the communist state that Tito brought up was successful in any way in trying to limit or hem in ethnic and religious tensions within that part of the world? Because obviously that was a large part of the reason for the creation of Yugoslavia as a socialist state. Tito saw ethnic and religious divisions as being a massive obstacle to socialist development? 
Uh, yes, I mean, again, there is a debate, let's say, in, in the uh, historiography as to, to what extent uh, Yugoslavia had been successful in quelling these uh, inter-ethnic relations. Uh, the, one of the biggest arguments that it did not succeed to a great extent is the uh, wars that ensued in the 90s, because there were very bloody wars uh, beyond um, among the people who, who uh, used this slogan of brotherhood and unity throughout the existence of the second uh, Yugoslavia. But I would say in a lot of regions, Yugoslavia did manage to, to promote this uh, brotherhood and unity and ethnic peace to a greater extent than uh, any other, uh, uh, let's say, state or empire that existed in this, in this region. But uh, Kosovo is a peculiar case. Again, I would say Albanians had the most rights during Yugoslav times, especially after the constitution changes in 1974, when Kosovo and Metohija became an autonomous province with Albanian is the first language. There has been a lot of there have been a lot of Albanians participating in this um, state apparatus. They got education, employment, and things like that. But the thing is that um, after the Second World War, uh, there had been um, almost mi- military rule in Kosovo because of this interethnic uh, um, relations that existed between local Serbs and Kosovars. And there has been uh, again this. Um, issue with or again historical grievances of the of the uh, indigenous albanians in in kosovo who have seen their land and their properties taken away by the serbian or montenegrin colonies who have been uh, settling the province in in the interwar uh, interwar period so although at least on paper i would say there was to some extent or more brotherhood and unity and peace than in any other uh, incarnation of Yugoslav states, I would say this has been mostly just a taking time bomb waiting waiting to explode. And then Milosevic came and he he basically lit the fuse. Uh, but I, I guess, as I said, I, I think uh, uh, not many Kosovars would agree that Yugoslavia was a great idea, which is something that you would find among many Slavs or Yugoslavs, uh, that Yugoslavia was the best state that could, could have existed in his uh, uh, in these lands, but Kosovo Albanians would not share this uh, opinion because, as I said, they were collectively excu- excluded as a constituent people from this country because it was a country of southern Slavs and they they are uh, ethnically different different people who have entered maybe a late stage of state state building and nation building, maybe the latest of all other countries and, and peoples in the, in the region, but maybe they still do deserve a chance or a go at it. It's interesting. I mean, I'm not a a Marxist, a communist, but one of the things that Marx, probably one of the more intelligent things that he pointed out is that poor people are often pitted against one another over their race and over their culture by elites, when actually their interests, economic interests are quite well aligned. Um, And it is perhaps quite telling that the only person who managed to sort of relegate racial politics at temporarily, as you said, was a Marxist-Leninist. It's always been quite an interesting thing for me. Well, yes, although Yugoslavia had its distinct type of socialism. It was not hardcore Leninist or or Stalinist, uh, but it it had its own version of uh, self-governing socialism. This is how it was called. Um, And, I mean, again, it was more or less successful, but it, again, depends on the um, situation. Yugoslavia was also a non-allied country. It benefited from having good relations with the West and the East as well. Uh, but uh, there is definitely true 
truth to this when you say that the 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 especially after the the solution of Yugoslavia that these new political elites insisted or promoted these ethnic um, religious linguistic differences among the people, whereas this uh, basically theft of public property land um, money basically has has been. Uh, have been, you know, happening in front of our eyes. And up until this day, I do believe that actually the need to resolve the ethnic questions, which is often heard in Serbia, but also in other countries in the region, is just a mask. The ethnic questions do not need to be resolved. We need to resolve the class issues and the class question. And this is the the case that we have even now in the region that the political elite, the political class, has taken most of the resources. They've, they've captured the Serbia is the most obvious uh, example of the captured state, but also in other countries in the region. And they have been writing this nationalist or anti-Serbian, anti-Albanian rhetorics solely for the purpose of them staying in power and extracting resources from the uh, from the newly created nation states. And we've had this throughout the region in all uh, Austro-Yugoslav countries. To come to the 90s, the uneasy peace between different Yugoslavian constituents fell apart in that decade. People who want to hear about the full extent of that can listen to my podcast about Slobodan Milosevic with your colleague Igor Bandovic. Milosevic was a Serb nationalist. He made a very famous speech on Kosovo Polje, the place where we started our conversation today in 1987, which to many symbolised his statement of intent. Mm -hmm. He fought four wars to keep Yugoslavia together the final one of which, as you said, was in Kosovo. Can you ex- go into a bit more detail about what happened in Kosovo in 1998-99? What were the factors that led up to it and what were the the problematic elements of the way that the Serbs were treating the Kosovars? Uh, well, as you, as you right, rightfully pointed out, there were, this was the last uh, uh, war that Milosevic fought and already before that he had lost all three, with terrible atrocities committed by Serbian or pro-Serbian military, paramilitary forces in Croatia and uh, to even a greater extent in Bosnia and Herzegovina, including the massacre and genocide in, in Srebrenica that took place. So I think this was Milosevic's last resort, I would say, of his very uh, uh, belligerent nationalist uh, rhetoric, but also politics. I was actually born three weeks after Milosevic delivered his now infamous speech in Kosovo Polje, just like 50 kilometers away from this uh, from this place. And he said in this uh, speech in 1987, nobody can beat you, nobody can touch you. And then literally many countries managed to do so. I mean, eventually, including NATO countries that bombed uh, the, the Yugoslavia at the times. But uh, as the wars in Croatia and Bosnia developed, I mean, the inter-ethnic situation in Kosovo grew more dangerous and serious, let's say. I already I had already mentioned that Kosovars, Kosovo Albanians have been expelled from schools, from public institutions, they lost work. Uh, and eventually they uh, started resistance. I mean obviously there were some there were some political there were some political leaders who were more willing to cooperate and negotiate with Belgrade, but eventually these talks uh, had little substance and they didn't lead to any breakthrough in relations. Uh, and then uh, Kosovo Albania started organizing themselves into uh, what initially was seen as a terrorist organization, Kosovo Liberation Army, and which now is considered, at least in Kosovo and by many Western countries, that it has it actually had been a uh, army or a popular uprising uh, due to the 
pressure, but also uh, uh, actions of police and, uh, and military of, of, of the Serbian state directed against the Albanians. So uh, there have been a long period of uh, almost civil war or conflict, uh, armed conflict between the Serbian security forces and this uh, paramilitary group uh, comprised of Kosovo uh, Albanians. Again, there there have always been a foreign factor involved. Uh, these uh, organizations have been in touch with the international uh, partners. There are different claims on who supported uh, which side, but I think uh, the breaking point was when the OSC verification mission was sent to Kosovo, which was uh, mandated to oversee the situation in the, in the country. Um, and they found evidence that there have been systematic violations of human rights, uh, massacres committed by the Serbian forces. And eventually they left the country and uh, the last attempt to uh, peacefully resolve the situation in the province uh, was in Rambouillet, where there were peace, uh, peace talks between the leaders of both parties. And then eventually Slobodan Milosevic failed, refu refused to accept the what was offered uh, there in this very picturesque uh, French castle. Uh, and then NATO bombing ensued. Um, obviously, uh, Yugoslavia at the time... Uh, was a no match to NATO countries uh, simply in terms of, you know, military equipment uh, strategies used. Uh, there, it was simply impossible to resist for a for a uh, for a long time. But during during the NATO bombing, the most uh, the biggest atrocities actually took place. There were more than eight hundred thousand Albanians expelled from from Kosovo. So Slobodan Milosevic and Serbian forces used this uh, opportunity to actually. Um, ramp up and step up with their uh, military and police operations directed towards the Albanian civilians. So, as I said, somewhat shy of a million Albanians had to leave the province. This was a huge humanitarian disaster. And eventually, after the uh, pretty much Yugoslav military was completely defeated by NATO countries, the a peace uh, agreement was signed in Kumanovo, in now North Macedonia where Serbia accepted to put to, to, to withdraw its uh, military and police personnel from Kosovo, its state institutions uh, as well, in terms of not administering the, administering the province anymore. And then NATO peacekeeping forces, CAFE or Kosovo forces, uh, were deployed, starting with maybe at the beginning around 50,000 troops. Now these numbers are much lower, somewhat around 4,000 troops. There were many steps in between or up until this period, but maybe that's going to be point for, for later. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the episode where NATO peacekeeping forces ultimately came into Kosovo. It's an episode that's explained, covered quite well in Tim Marshall's book Shadowland. He was the, the Sky News reporter in, uh, in Kosovo at the time. And I think after the NATO peacekeeping forces came in, many of the Serbs who had been living in Kosovo just sort of left, didn't they? There was kind of an exodus in sort of 99, 2000, 2001. How much of the Kosovo population is ethnic Serb today? It's a tricky question because uh, you mentioned uh, there, there were several senzai uh, that took place over the couple of last decades. And uh, in all of them, one side boycotted. So while they were administered by Yugoslavia, Albanians would boycott. And the most recent ones administered by Kosovo institutions serves boycotted. But the estimates are that there is around 5% of Kosovo population in total, a little bit more, maybe seven, uh, that there are ethnic minorities. And 
Serbs are estimated around 100,000, but I am almost certain that these numbers are much, much lower. And then, again, these are estimates based on various sources. Most of these Serbs actually live in the central parts of Kosovo. There are six municipalities, I believe, there with a Serbian majority population. And in the North Kosovo, which uh, is fre- frequented in headlines across the world over the past couple of, I mean, last year in particular, but it has been a centerpiece for so long. There, there are fewer Serbs, but uh, uh, and these Serbs in the north, where I'm originally from as well, they are they live in a geographically separated region. Let's say they are uh, ethnically grouped there, so it's a very homogeneous uh, um, region, and it has direct land ties with uh, Serbia, Serbia proper, so in the north. Uh, and this is these are the let's say maybe factors that contributed to these Serbs being more hostile towards. Kosovo institutions, Kosovo statehood, and up until this day, they refuse to participate in um, now already almost independent Kosovo. Like we said, it is a contested uh, country, but uh, with these integration efforts, I mean, the Serbs in the north are re- really reluctant to participate in these uh, efforts. And then Serbs in the south have been, for one reason or another, slowly integrated, and now they live side by side with their Albanian neighbors. Obviously, it's it's still not a uh, Switzerland. It will never be, perhaps. Uh, but it, they live uh, in a much more uh, or much less stressful and insecure environment than the Serbs uh, than the Serbs in the north. So I think this would this, this is a big distinction. There is a lot of Serbs living in the central in central Kosovo. Little, uh, fewer of those living in the north, and also there is a large chunk of Kosovo Serbs who had left Kosovo, like you said. And they keep leaving, and now there is this uh, increased migration pattern where Serbs from the central parts of Kosovo would migrate towards the north, which has uh, Serbian University, uh, Serbian healthcare center, and then Serbs from the north would leave into Serbia, sending their kids there to go to school. And this is not necessarily because of the inter-ethnic conflict between the Serbs and Albanians, but it is because the north itself has, in the meantime, become a criminalized environment with very little prospects for planning your future, with very little job you know, opportunities. Uh, if you want to have a meaningful career in pretty much anything, it's almost impossible to do it there. It's, it's a region that lacks perspective when it comes to the, to the young people. I mean, just to put this in perspective, I think the last census or one of the last censuses conducted by Yugoslavia showed that there was prob- probably a quarter of the cause of our population were Serbs ethnically. Uh, yes, it could be. Um, but the thing is that after the uh, the, the the Serbian forces withdrew, uh, a lot of Serbs withdrew with them. And there are estimates around 250,000 Kosovo Serbs left Kosovo in the immediate aftermath of the war. Obviously, there was a lot of police, military personnel with their families who had to leave, but also Serbs living in Pristina. For example, Pristina boasted with a um, large Serbian population as a capital of the province, uh, and now there's only a handful of Serbs living in, in Pristina. But also there have been waves after uh, the initial uh, you know, uh, transition period. In 2004 was a big, uh, again, trauma in the Serbian collective history of the Serbs who live in Kosovo because there was a pogrom, which is, this is how it, it's, it's known, where um, over a couple of days... Uh, there was an incident that took place um, where some uh, 
Albanian children were drowned in a river and some local Serbs were accused. And there was a huge uprising of ethnic Albanians directed against Kosovo Serbs. There was more than 150 churches burned, houses burned. It was a very problematic time uh, to, to be a Serb in Kosovo. And then again, in this, uh, uh, in this wave, again, a uh, large portion of Kosovo Serbs left, in addition to those who had already left previously. This is what I wanted to get to, because obviously, under Milosevic, the Albanians were clearly under the boot of the Serbian state. That's pretty undeniable. But I want to get to this idea of potentially, as we'd say in English, the shoe is now on the other foot. Yeah. I was speaking to somebody that I work with, who was actually in Kosovo in the early 2000s as part of the NATO peacekeeping forces. Um, And he came out with quite an interesting observation that he had gone there under the belief that NATO was there to protect the Albanians. He actually realised over the course of the time there that NATO was spending as much time, if not more, starting to protect the Kosovo Serb minority. That is quite an ugly, well, it's a very ugly episode that you mentioned in 2004. In general, how much active discrimination do the Kosovo Serbs undergo in institutions, in things like the courts, in schools? You mentioned, obviously, that the Albanians were expelled from schools by the Serbs in the 90s. How much of of the shoe being on the other foot is there? Well, well, definitely the tables have turned to some extent, uh, but maybe just to clarify, NATO came there to uh, preserve peace, build peace, not necessarily to protect Albanians from the Serbs, but to protect both sides. But I would I would assume that in the beginning, that was the impression that the, the observers would get that yeah, the Albanians are the ones that need to be protecting protected. But after Serbian uh, military police and other personnel withdrew, it was the Serbs who were actually more exposed now to the violence directed towards them by the remaining KLA forces or even ethnic uh, ethnic Albanians, the civilians, um, maybe to get back to them because of the atrocities they suffered, but also now because, like you said, they, now they had the, the upper hand. So there was a, yeah, like, like you said, the, 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 the shoe did change uh, foot, uh, foot. Uh, but then as Kosovo was gaining uh, more of what can be now described as uh, uh, independence, Serbian minority rights were enshrined in the documents of the newly found Kosovo state. So, for example, Kosovo declaring independence in 2008, you know, adopting a constitution, Serbs there had a veto power that the Kosovo ethnic Kosovo Albanians cannot change many laws without their consent. Those laws that had to do with their uh, minority rights, collective minority rights. There, there are guaranteed seats uh, in the Kosovo parliament for Serbian um, MPs. There is a there are quotas that all Kosovo state institutions need to have at least ten percent of Kosovo Serbs in them. Uh, there are some very uh, liberal provisions about the language. It, the Serbian language is still official language in Kosovo. So this is all on paper. But when you get down to actually, you know, visiting Kosovo and being a Serb in Kosovo myself, I oftentimes felt ex- excluded because if you want to, for example, there was this big issue in two thousand and seventeen. Kosovo, uh, Serbian uh, judicial system in North Kosovo was dismantled and integrated into Kosovo system. 
there was a huge issue with the translation of Kosovo laws because Serbs were forced to integrate and they reluctantly accepted. So the judges, the prosecutors, very you know proud people, they ac- accepted to leave Serbian institutions and join Kosovo institutions only to find that, for example, laws that they need to uh, implement because they don't speak Albanian, uh, mo- mostly none of them speaks Albanian, they found that these are very bad almost Google translations of possible legal, uh, you know, documents. So this is very impossible to even, how can you interpret the law and implement it if you don't even have the right text uh, uh, in your hands? There are issues with the access to justice, very poor, as I said, translations, inability to communicate uh, with the other side, the, the Albanian, the Kosovo Albanian authorities. But I guess the biggest discrimination or the biggest fear among Kosovo Serbs, and I'm speaking particularly about Serbs in the north, is from Kosovo state uh, security institutions. So Serbs do participate in Kosovo police. Again, it's one of the institutions that has the highest representation, but Kosovo security forces and Kosovo special police forces, these are seen as uh, dangerous to local Serb population. And for example, over the past year, there have been many excursions of Kosovo special police forces into in the north. They were beating people up, shooting in uh, you know cars. People are people have been very afraid. And although these actions might be legal, you know, the Kosovo uh, government has every right, obviously, to send their special police forces to tackle organized crime, criminal groups, prevent smuggling. The perception of the local population is that these are directed against them and the, the, they do not feel safe. They feel uncertain when these actions take place. And this has been a very prominent point of content in the most recent negotiations between Belgrade and Pristina and what had been going on about the license plates and the more recent developments in the north. I mean, it is interesting because in Western circles, the Albanians are almost always people who draw sympathy from the international media. And the Serbs are viewed with a lot of suspicion. And, you know, that's quite understandable given the last major act of aggression in the region was perpetrated by the Serbs, by them. Mm-hmm. But this is still what you're describing is a mistreatment of an ethnic minority. And I think that should always be recognised, even if it doesn't kind of fit an easy narrative that the Western media wants. to Do you ever feel a sense of disappointment? In Western powers, do I am I disappointed by the Western powers? Well, yes, on so many occasions, many of us here in the region have been disappointed. The most recent disappointment is the fact that, owing to this protracted conflict between Kosovo and Serbia and these ongoing negotiations, because our government probably promised something a decade ago that they will deliver on Kosovo issue, the Western partners and we do consider them partners have turned their blind eye to democratic backsliding, human rights abuses that are taking place in Serbia. And we feel that for the sake of this perceived stability in the region, the Western partners have traded democracy and the human rights and media freedoms and whatnot. So Serbia is now less free, less secure, less democratic than it was before uh, 2012, let's say, when this incumbent government uh, came, uh, came to power. But when it comes to more... Broader terms, obviously, I do understand that, you know, regional and global powers have their own interests. There is no love among, uh, you know, countries. It is only pure interest. And definitely in the region, the biggest cloud 
uh, is the one from the US and especially more recently with the uh, with the war with the onset of the war in in Ukraine and then that of the EU and then Kosovo I guess played uh, played better in this geopolitical game because it's extremely pro-European pro-American first and then pro-European where Serbia is now in a worse position when it comes to you know not aligning with the sanctions regime against the, the against Russia and being more having more uh, of a balancing act so I, I, but when it comes to the perception from outsiders i guess yes serbia deserve it, serbs deservedly or maybe not all the population but it's understandable why serbs are perceived as you know warmongering um, war criminals and this is a very prominent trope but i guess the situation has been changing recently uh, and then i mean i followed the, the the british news i mean albania's got really bad press couple of months ago with you know uh, the numbers of their asylum seekers and coming to but also being participating in organized uh, crime in the uk so they also have uh, a very bad rap so i think the time has passed or sufficient time has passed so for for them to also uh lose this um compassion that they might have you know inspired uh, in in the west and now to become you know just a regular uh, run-of-the-mill you know migrants coming in and criminals you know invading our shores I asked you earlier about the differences between Serbs and Albanians, cultural differences. Do you think that now that the Serbs in Kosovo live under a different government, they perhaps don't recognize the government, but they, they live under it to a certain extent, especially the ones in central and south Kosovo. Do you think they have become different to the Serbs who live in Serbia? I mean, let me give you an example. I, I know Northern Ireland quite well because my dad's family are from there. Northern Irish Protestants have a certain, um, they, have a, they harbour a certain complex that they're under attack mm-hmm. from Irish Catholics, that they're being forced out of their own land in Northern Ireland. And in a way, they've become more fiercely nationalist than anybody is in the British mainland in Great Britain. Do you think that there's a similar thing going on there that actually the Kosovo Serbs have come to venerate a sort of image of Serbia that actually doesn't really exist north of the border? Uh, well, well, I guess uh, Serbs in the central central parts of Kosovo they are more um, well peaceful, if I may say so, because I think. Uh, the, the 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 situation there is that they, they they are pretty much left by everyone just to you know be by themselves by the Kosovo central authorities uh, not from the beginning but at some point but also they have been let go by Serbia because of the position the Serbs in the in the central part of Kosovo, central parts of Kosovo have they are dispersed they are surrounded by Albanian population it was impossible for them to maintain you know this. Um, idea of them being bastion of Serbianists in, 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 in Kosovo, and they could not withstand much, much long, I mean, uh, even if they wanted to do so. So they are essentially integrated, but they are still, uh, they, they, they function within Kosovo system and institutions more than Serbs in the north, but they are still uh, isolated from you know, general Albanian population. So, for example, the enclave of Gračanica, which is also a home to one of the medieval Serbian monasteries, and has 15 or plus thousand Serbs. It's just outside of Pristina, but very few Serbs from Gračanica would go frequently to Pristina, unless there is some, you know, 
business they need to take care of. And this is this would be very, very, uh, I mean, not very frequently. But then uh, uh, Serbs in the north, I guess, because of their closer ties to Serbia and because they have been, um, as I mentioned, geographically concentrated and uh, more homogenous there and also with fewer minorities, they managed to resist, uh, to resist, I guess, for a, a longer period. And they're still, still, still resisting this um, integration pressure was coming from Pristina. And the only progress actually that, that took place after 2013, when this uh, famous Brussels agreement was signed in, in Brussels, uh, that, that provided for integration of Serbs into Kosovo institutions, I think the, the only progress that took place was under immense pressure from Belgrade. So I think the key factor that could potentially lead to some kind of, uh, you know, resolving the outstanding issues in conflict is the position of Belgrade when it comes to the when it comes to the Kosovo Serbs, and then Kosovo Serbs in the north again they have been living under now pretty much in a security vacuum since the uh, Serbian police officers withdrew from local uh, police. Forces, but it has never been um, clear whose jurisdiction it was because it's um, there. You have presence of the international community there still. There are some tentative Kosovo institutions present, at least on paper. Uh, and then there is the remnants of Serbian institutional framework there as well. When it comes to local municipalities, schools that are still run by Serbian finance from Serbia, and there are also healthcare, uh, healthcare system, which is also. Uh, operated uh, operated from Serbia, so I think there there could parallels could be could be drawn, I guess, but maybe the opposite is from what happened in Northern Ireland. So I, I would guess those who remained in the central part of Kosovo because of of the situation and the circumstances, they became more pacified. Whereas Serbs in the north, again, uh, for various reasons, including the support coming from Serbia. Uh, uh, and also the most recent developments in the Kosovo government, Kosovo government being more um, militant towards them and aggressive, they did, rem did uh, remain more hostile towards integration uh, attempts. You've mentioned what happened in northern Kosovo over Christmas, this issue with, with license plates, which actually got really quite ugly. Um, can, you, can you explain a, a little bit about what happened? Well, yes. I mean, actually, it, it it it's a longer process, almost for half a month. So there, there obviously because Kosovo and Serbia have so many outstanding issues that are unresolved, and Kosovo and Serbia does not recognize Kosovo. There is issue with a whole host of things, including the uh, passports, IDs. How can you cross the border if one country does not recognize the other's um, documents? And then one of the issues were license plates, because Serbia still claiming territory of Kosovo as its own continues to issue license plates, which in Serbia are different than those in the UK because we have geographical location placed on, on the license plate. So if, the, for example, license plates are issued in Belgrade, they will have BG as uh, two letters to begin, where the license plate begins with those letters. And then in Kosovo North, a town where I'm from, Kosovska Mitrovica, has its own de geographic designation, KM. And... Serbian police, because Serbian police in Serbia issues license plates, continues to issue these license plates, which are considered extremely problematic by Kosovo because this is an extension of Serbia legal system and institutions into Kosovo territory. Not to mention that Kosovo Albanians do not recognize the name of Kosovska Mitrovica, they only call it Mitrovica because it's the only Mitrovica that exists in Kosovo. Whereas in Serbia, we have two at least. And then uh, these Kama 
KM tape, uh, license plates were seen as the at least sim- symbolical presence of Serbian authorities still in Kosovo. And the new Kosovo prime minister was adamant and, you know, resolving this issue and just having Kosovo license plates present there. And obviously not to bore your listeners with a lot of, there was there have been so many agreements on this uh, negotiation process, but uh, the issues escalated once um, story stories or we got the information that the there have been this new Franco Truman proposal for um, a new agreement to be signed between Kosovo and Serbia, which could potentially resolve these very political, politically sensitive issues, including the membership in the UN, how how Kosovo and Serbia treat each other. And then I would say that these barricades that were put up, this extreme instability that, that ensued after this agreement, you know, uh, got uh, into the public, I would say these, these were of... Uh, local making it, it was almost intentional you know ramping up this chaos and ramping up this instability in the north to avoid discussing this new uh, agreement which could potentially in the longer term provide a framework for more uh, peaceful and stable uh, stable relations so yeah this was but this was just one of the issues that is uh, that, that that is that have been you know abused there, there there are many others for example kosovo also uh, in during the summer introduce reciprocity measures about entering Kosovo. So before that, Kosovo citizen would need to leave their passport uh, and at the crossing point with Serbia and get a piece of paper that served as their ID while they are in Serbia because Serbia does not recognize Kosovo passports. But then Kosovo government reintroduced introduced the same things for Serbian citizens entering Kosovo, which was seen problematic from the Belgrade point of view. And then these, these agreements were you know changed and now both Serbia and Kosovo recognize each other's documents, which is a breakthrough in relations, but it was basically negotiated by coming up with a new crisis. Are these episodes something that Kosovo and Serbia are just going to have to contend with as inevitable parts of having disagreements over borders and nationality, and that these things, whilst they're quite troublesome and often violent, they're just going to carry on and actually they don't represent anything worse coming down the tracks. Or do you do you think that actually these things are building into something really quite worrying and that actually there are some pretty dark clouds on the horizon? Well, I don't know. We, uh, people, I mean, us who work on policy research and who, who does a lot of, who, who do a lot of field work in the region, I, I, I've never felt over the past couple of years, I've never felt extremely worried about the developments because understanding the situation is that uh, Belgrade sends a signal to Kosovo service in the north, put up the barricades, and you know these are controlled and these are coordinated by local Serbs who are on the phone with Belgrade here. And I, I never felt insecure about this. But then again, this was not even... This is a theater put up for the uh, outsider and the observers from coming mostly from the Western countries because, oh, now there is a potential for a new conflict. Let's maybe try to mediate a little bit. And then you've seen this, what we consider a very toxic approach of the international community, where you would have these high representatives of Serbia and Kosovo meeting in Brussels over two years' time, discussing whether they should put a sticker on a license plate to cover you know, these problematic uh, uh, municipal designations or something else. And this led to state capture through foreign policy, if I may maybe elaborate on this concept, because obviously if I was in the position of Serbian president and you need to 
resolve this outstanding issue with Kosovo, which is extremely unpopular in Serbia. I mean, resolving it in any way, except from reintegrating, you know, Kosovo into Serbia. If you if you want to sign any kind of uh, agreement that might be considered or perceived as you recognize independence, it's an extremely problematic issue. And then in order to postpone this agreement, you would occasionally stir up co- conflict or come up with a new idea that would just indefinitely postpone this idea. And yes, obviously, it, 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 it is true for both Kosovars and Serbs, the, all political leaders in both in both countries would prefer to, you know, just continue meeting in Brussels with Lychak, the, you know, Borel or uh, Baroness Ashton before Mogherini to discuss these ridiculous technical issues and to actually sit down and negotiate a framework that could, you know, set the path towards a more peaceful, uh, uh, peaceful f- future, uh, future for the people. The nightmare scenario for people where I live and for people where you live as well is a return to the conflict of the late 1990s. Alexander Vucic, the Serbian president, is, I think, a highly opportunistic character and probably quite unscrupulous, it's fair to say. Do you have faith in Vucic, the Serbian leader, and in the Albanian government, do you have faith that they can operate with restraint if things get really, really bad? Uh, this, I, I think this is them operating with restraint. And, and because to go back to kind of understanding things from a more intimate uh, perspective, everybody in the Serbian government right now, including the president, Vucic, They've all been parts of the political establish, establishment during the 90s, including our Minister of Foreign Affairs, our head of you know, National Bank, Central Bank. And they know how it ended. They know that NATO intervened and they lost power immediately after that. And now th- this is their second attempt at you know, tr- you know, gr- grabbing all the le- uh, levers of power. And they know where the red lines are. So whenever somebody mentions well, whether there will be a conflict between Serbia military and Kosovo, I say no. Everybody in the chief of staff in Belgrade, everybody sitting in, in the presidential office, sitting in our government knows that if a fly crosses a, a border, that will lead to a conflict with NATO because NATO is still the sole or the last security provider in Kosovo and there are still NATO troops there. And if there is a, I don't know, a, a random, you know, bullet fired by Serbian military that goes into Kosovo territory and murders or wounds somebody, this would lead to escalation of conflicts with NATO, and everybody understands it here, and this is why all of this I consider a theater, and we try to actually, when we get interviewed or asked by uh, foreign correspondents asking us, oh, will there be a war, or even asking, oh, what is the likelihood of being of there being a war once again? We always say, no, it's not going to happen, and a lot of people also in the region, when we do public opinion polls, are aware. Most of them don't think, not, do not think that there will be a full-blown Conflict. Yes, there are. It's there are instabilities. It is dangerous. There could there could be some small scale interethnic conflicts, even armed ones. But I I assure you, there is good understanding in Belgrade that any kind of sending military to Kosovo or things like that that would lead to uh, conflict with NATO and people in Belgrade to repeat the the, the adjectives. But yeah, they are they they've been there once and they know the missteps that, that they made. And if they do not care about their citizens, and I don't think they care about neither Serbs nor Kosovars, they do care about themselves. So they know that if this happens, they will be simply lost forever. And then this is why then 
they they don't not gonna make those moves. I just want to ask you one more question, and it's about how the war in Ukraine comes into all this. In the sort of five years before Russia invaded Ukraine last year, there were serious question marks about NATO's commitment in Eastern Europe and the American commitment to Europe more generally, largely fueled by the Trump presidency, but also by other factors, populism in Europe, the seeming atrophying of the European Union, things like that. Has the war in Ukraine given you more faith that NATO is going to be there if things get bad? I know you'd think they won't, but let's just imagine if they did. Do you have more faith in NATO now than you did a year ago? Well, uh, I would say definitely there is a better cohesion in NATO. And with Trump in office and this transatlantic partnership being a bit uh, on a shaky ground, everybody was considering whether the Article 5 of Washington Treaty even still applies anymore. You know, if there is an attack on a a NATO country, would there be some kind of, you know, no, we do not want to, you know, uh, uh, follow our commitments. But I think now with the new administration in, in, in D.C. and with the war, there is this new renewed unity and renewed commitment by NATO countries. And they've shown it already. They've deployed more troops in Bosnia. They've, you know, uh, strengthened their positions in the uh, east, in Eastern Europe. So I think, yeah, uh, I, I don't want to say I had much faith in NATO before, but let's say it's at the same level as it, as it used to be. But I think there are capabilities and the forward posture that they introduced in, in, in the East does show a, a, a definitely clear commitment to, you know, uh, warding off at least uh, threats. But uh, the, the conflict in, in, in Ukraine did uh, impact to a great extent what is happening in Serbia. And I think this, uh, I mentioned this new agreement by proposed by France and Germany. I think this is a response uh, that came after the onset of Russian of the Russian war in Ukraine, that the Western partners simply lost their patience. Of let's you know, twenty four years after the war, we still haven't reached any kind of sustainable solution. They lost patience, and now they're pushing for this. Um, and then, uh, obviously, Serbia is there. I would say on a losing side because of uh, of the Serbian close ties with uh, uh, with Putin and the regime in Moscow. Uh, and there has been a lot of Again, uh, uh, headlines about whether Balkans is the ne- next place where Russia can, you know, um, stir up a conflict in order to, you know, divert attention from what is going on in Ukraine. And then again, I would say there are these are some legitimate fears, but in Serbia, although extremely pro-Russian among the population, and with our poly- foreign policy, which is not aligned with that of the EU, and still, still keeping very, uh, uh, still keeping uh, very friendly ties, I would say. This is done on purpose by the local elites, particularly on one hand to you know garner support from this pro-Russian sentiment in the Serbian population, but also to be able to still uh, uh, still negotiate with the West. And the Serbian government is the primary vessel of Russian influence in Serbia. There are there is not that many Russian spies running around. You know there is not that many covert operations conducted by Russian agents. Most of the Russian influence in Serbia comes from the cooperative Serbian government and the president. So it's not very deep, in other words. Um, it, you, it's difficult to tell. I would say it's less deep than uh, some analysts would have it. Less deep than that, definitely. Because there are no active anti-Russian measures in Serbia. It's, it's, a, it's a question to what extent Russia could actually, you know, 
show their muscles if there were actually anti-Russian government or if the government turns or makes a U-turn. And over the past couple of weeks, there have been some signals that, that there could be a change of, of course of the Serbian government on this on this particular issue. Boyan, thank you. That's been really interesting. Where can people find your work if you if they want to uh, look for your work more? Well, thank you. Uh, I also enjoyed the conversation. So my name is uh, Boyan Alec. I work for Belgium Center for Security Policy. We have a website. It's uh, bezbednost.org. It's a Serbian word for security. But if you Google our name, you can find it. And then we are most of us, and I included, we are on Twitter and other social media. We work on many issues. The Kosovo-Serbia relations is just one of those. But we also work on security sector reform in Serbia. We do... Uh, foreign influences uh, in the region. We and we also organized uh, what we like to call the biggest security conference in this part of the world. It's called Belgrade Security Conference, uh, and it's a great place to be. So if it's the next um, event is scheduled for uh, October, we're looking forward to you know hosting again uh, European global leaders and to bring global discussions to Belgrade. Thanks, Boyan. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and, for good measure, leave us a review. You can also follow The Hated and the Dead on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, so you never miss new content.